So this morning, before we get into the message, I wanted to take some time, as we've now finished a year and a half of Revelation, not including the seven letters to the churches, which ate up another couple months. Um, but I just wanted to take some time this morning to open it up for questions or comments or critiques even. Um, but just to be able to open it up so you guys can feel free to discuss. I mean, that's a lot of material that we've been digesting for over a year and a half now. Um, and I just want to make it somewhat of a more common practice that you guys can feel free to ask questions or have a comment or uh, have a critique or any of that. But that way you guys feel that there's open dialogue back and forth. Because I'm not just here for my benefit. I'm not just here because I like to talk a lot. Okay? I'm here because I'm here to shepherd. And God has called me to that. And part of that is dialogue, right? Part of that is understanding where you guys are at. Understanding your thoughts, your concerns, answering questions. Um, hearing critiques or you know encouragements or whatever it may be. But I want to make sure that we stay true to understanding each other. And we stay true to understanding God's word. That we're not just moving through the scriptures and there's questions and they don't get answered because that gives little benefit right there's little benefit to the hearer who doesn't understand and so part of that is opening this time up to allow for that so i'm going to just open it up and if somebody has a question or a comment or whatever else feel free to speak it And this isn't a time of right or wrong either, just so you know. You're not getting graded on this. Comment would be that, and something that impressed me, that Karen and I have had some conversation about it. Actually, we may have had a conversation in the whole house about it. Um, It's just the magnitude of the New Jerusalem. Mm. The size. When you think about 1,500 miles square, Mm -hmm. so... It begs some questions. Um, you know, your average, your average airplane flies at 40, 45,000 feet. But this is, we're talking 7.9 million feet tall. 79 million, 7.9 million feet wide and deep. deep. Are there going to be, are we going to be able, when we go to the New Jerusalem, are we going to be able to travel in multi-direction? Are we going to be limited by the physics that we're limited to now? I mean, it's so big and so tall. Well, there are going to be different levels. (laughs) Just the magnitude of it. And you can't, it's one of those things that you try and wrap your head around, the size. But it's it's giant. It's, it's unlike anything ever it's seen. It's like the distance from here to the Gulf of Mexico mm-hmm. out to Colorado, Colorado, East Coast. And I mean, that's a giant city, and that's just a city, right? Mm-hmm. The magnitude of where we'll be mm-hmm. when Christ comes back is staggering. Yeah. And just thinking about the magnitude of that and the beauty of it, and, the, and just the thickness of the walls. I mean, the walls themselves are, I think I figured they're a little over 200, 200 feet. feet wide. Mm-hmm. 270 feet, I think. Mm-hmm. That's a thick wall. Yeah. And the gate's made of pearls. Mm-hmm. 
Big yep. Lots of them. Very. Nope. Just one single pearl. So. But just the magnitude of this of the of the New Jerusalem. Yeah. For me, it just creates more awe and mm-hmm. who God is and how big He is and mm-hmm. how and what He's preparing for us. Yeah. What size is the throne in the midst of the city? Right. And yet, God will be ever present in the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. A thought that's fun to sit on and dwell on, you know. You know are we going to be? Obviously, we're going to be like Christ as He is, like He told His disciples. So obviously, like walls didn't mean anything to Christ. He could just there He was, you know. So we'll be like that. We'll be like angels that aren't dictated by gravity or things like that. But to what extent? How much of the altitude are we know. able to utilize? I mean, All of it. It's just so cool. There's no death, no pain, no suffering. So it's not like you're going to get air sickness or thin air is going to make you pass out or anything like that or fall or fall <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's amazing and, and again it's what, what's the scripture it hasn't even entered into the heart of man what god has in store right and he's recorded this and the things that he hasn't recorded yes. it's, it's never entered the heart or the thought of man and it's great because and again in talking about that so like you said this is the one city right this is the main city of god but it's on a new earth, and it's in the midst of the new heavens. And we get no description of that. Besides, there's one really giant mountain. That's all we get. But what else is there? I, I don't know. It's amazing to think about. blows the mind. And anything we think of is going to be inadequate. But, yeah, it's really neat. Anybody else? You know, the more comments you guys have, the less I preach, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> In other words, he's just kidding. You still got to preach. This is right going to Never said that. <laughs> nothing else, really? We've had a year and a half and then nothing. I know I'm not that good of a preacher. See the wheels spinning. Anybody? Again, I know I'm not that good of a preacher, so come on. <laughs> it's a lot of material. interesting also in reading some of the commentaries about Revelation that there's an awful lot of people who are writing commentaries that don't believe the literalness, the literalness yes. of the tribulation. They think it's all symbolism. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it talks about um, in the tribulation where it talks about men men of the evil men being destroyed they extrapolate that to evil leaders, mm-hmm. not all men. Right. And I, I find that minimizing or or reducing the severity of God's judgment. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's going to judge those who led in an evil fashion. Mm-hmm. He's also going to judge those who decided to follow, to follow and reject 
the gospel of Christ. And I, I was thinking about that and the fact that these men that are writing these commentaries, are they are they minimizing it on purpose or minimizing it because they don't want the tribulation to be as bad as it's going to be? Yeah. It's a minimalist view of sin as well. My personal sin isn't that important that God will punish it here on earth. Really, what it's getting it's almost out like to. them saying, "Well, it's, kid, it's not going to be that bad." Yes. And, and if you take away the reality of a tribulation, then it's not that bad. My sin's not worth God's wrath, right? In the day of wrath, so everything you read in the Old Testament about the great day of God's wrath is irrelevant at that point, because that's all that it's talking about. It's talking about God's judgment on sin and wickedness on this earth, not some. And a lot of those guys that preach that way believe in annihilism. Like when you're dead, if you're wicked, you're just done. You don't exist anymore. So it's, yeah, there's, there's a very big minimalist idea that, one, God is loving enough to where he's not necessarily going to have seven years of absolute horror. Or God is not wrathful enough that he's going to eternally punish people for their decision to love their sin. That's a dangerous ground to tread because where's the urgency then that is written in the book of Revelation, like right when we ended in chapter 22, the consistent urgency of Christ himself saying, come, repent, accept. Well, where does that urgency go if there's really not a penalty then? There's really not a great day of wrath. There's really not an eternal hell. Well, if that's the case, then why not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die? Who cares? That's the idea, right? Got something? Not meaning to point you out, I just seen you flipped open. Go ahead. Feel free. Um, I was thinking marriage supper with the lamb. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be like imagine the biggest, most high profile, prestigious event that's ever happened on earth. It's gonna be nothing comparison. Mm-hmm. And the Bible says, Blessed are they that are invited to marriage supper. Mm-hmm. And if we can truly say that we're accepted in the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's a comfort and a blessing. Mm-hmm. Best Thanksgiving Day meal you've ever had. relegating yourself to my preaching again. All right. Going once, twice, sold to the highest bidder. All right. Okay, so this morning, and we're going to be diving into the Gospel of Mark, but not today. Um, Lord willing, 
unless something drastically changes. Next week, I'm going to be doing the introduction to the Gospel of Mark. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I enjoy the Gospels. Um, Mark, you and I have had this conversation a few times that as I've gotten older and, Lord willing, more mature in my faith, I read the Gospels less as a warm, fuzzy book and a lot more as the stern fierceness of Christ. So many people read the Gospels and they picture, you know, the Jesus with the long hair and a lamb on his shoulders and he's just meek and mild and gentle. But if you really, truly stop and sit and ruminate on the dialogue of Christ with his disciples, with followers, with the unbelieving, with the religious leaders, the dialogue is fierce and harsh often. And there's a lot of sarcasm there. Um, you know, you re- read Psalm 2 and get the sarcasm of God, right? And so often people decide to to detract from the person of Christ and they decide to separate Christ from God the Father, right? Because we can picture God the Father as a wrathful individual, right? You go through the Old Testament and all those judgments, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah to the flood to the Babylonian captivity to all these issues. You read through the book of Judges, right? Over and over again. The people sin, God judge. The people sin, God judge, right? Back and forth. And so many people separate and divorce Christ from the judgments of God the Father. As we're reading through the book of Exodus, right? We've looked at the twelve, the, the ten plagues, right? That was Christ. Christ was at Sodom and Gomorrah raining down fire and brimstone. Christ was at the flood pouring out and breaking open the deeps. Christ was in all the judgments that we read within this book. Christ and the Father are one. There is no separation. And when you detract and divorce Christ from the Father, you get a very different gospel. You get a gospel that is actually lighthearted and cheery and not so bad. So many people have no problem with Jesus, but they have a problem with God the Father. I see it often, even in my own family, not these people sitting right here but in my extended family is the I'm okay with Christ but I'm not okay with God and honestly one of the big problems with that is is fathers failing to be godly fathers because us as fathers are to paint a picture and give a living example of our heavenly father it's a high charge and we fail at it more often than we succeed And we wonder why people have a problem with a godly father. But this morning's message, and I love my wife to pieces, but she decided that my title that I really wanted was too big to fit and make look pretty. So she just gave you a partial title, which was Contentment and Christ. It was actually supposed to be Contentment, Christ, and Communion. See? We'll, we'll, We'll work on it. Yeah, I know. her. She's like, the Facebook thing looks so pretty the way it is. Like, But that's not what I really am. And I'm like, wait. It needs to be contentment, Christ, and communion. Because actually the, the, the communion ties the rest of it together. And that's what we're going to get at. So in our culture, in our day and age, we have a lot of dysfunctionality. Anybody want to refute that? No? Okay, great. We're all on the same page. Unity in Christ is great. <laughs> but we have a movement, which is not like unlike any other movement that we've had in the past. We have a lot of movements, right? 
And a lot of it, the vast majority of it, is unbiblical. Because we don't understand Christ. We don't see Christ as he is. I don't know, um, I had my wife share a clip um, talking about that very thing, the picture of Christ. And it was by Vody Bacham. And it was really, I know you, you've seen it and you shared it, Mark. And just the understanding of our culture is we forget that one, God being in definition doesn't need anything. Therefore, he's not pining away after us. And secondly, Christ is God. Therefore, the very definition of Christ is not lowly, meek, and mild, and he's nothing else like the Father. And thirdly, who Christ is. He's not the babe in the manger, right? Oftentimes we celebrate at Christmas season, we celebrate the first coming of Christ and his first advent. His second advent, which we just finished going through, right? That was the whole point of Revelation, is the revelation of Jesus Christ, of who he is. It's a very different picture. Such a different picture that the disciple whom Jesus loved, who reclined upon his bosom when he saw the risen Christ in his glory, did what? Fell at his feet in terror like a dead man. That is not lowly Jesus, meek and mild. That is risen Savior, God and King. That's the Christ that we serve. That's the Christ that we forget and don't celebrate in the Gospels. We look at Christ in the Gospels and we see what? We see humanity. We picture Christ as ourselves. But even as a man, he was still fully God. He did not lack any of the character attributes of God himself. Yet he was in fleshly form. Therefore, man could what? One, look upon him and not die. Right? We always forget that part. But two, he had to put on flesh in order to satisfy the law that we cannot satisfy in our flesh. But he was no less God in the flesh. We divorce the fact that he was sovereign king and creator when we see him in the Gospels. And so often that's why people get the Gospel wrong. We celebrate communion, and we're going to have the blessing of celebrating communion this morning. But the biggest thing that we neglect is what? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Do we have Jesus right? That's where we have to start in order to do communion correctly. Are we getting our remembrance of Christ right? Or is it convoluted? Is it distorted? Is it another Christ? Which there is no other Christ. But that's where we have to start. Can we honestly answer Yes, I am doing this in remembrance of who you are. You are God sovereign. Not just a good man that lived a perfect life, who died, shed his blood for our sins, and we're okay. We miss the whole gospel at that point. When we just put Christ in that category of, he did what God sent him to do, he was a good man. No, And yes, he was a good man, and he was perfect. But Christ was also the sovereign, only, holy God. 
And that compounds our memories because as we look at Christ, we know that God can't dwell among sin. And yet here's Christ in the flesh. There is such dichotomy to the person of Christ that we often read through the Gospels and, oh, that's a really good story. Oh, there's some really good things that we can picture a shepherd and he's the good shepherd. So we just think of this nice guy that moves the sheep around and is really gentle and tender. And while that is true, yes, but I, oftentimes we forget that even David as a shepherd killed lions and bears and drove the wolves away. David was a valiant warrior, mighty in strength indeed. Why do we divorce Christ from that picture? He was the root of David, but also the descendant of David. And again, we oftentimes forget that the God of the Old Testament is still the same God of the Gospels. The Gospels were written under the Old Covenant. Remember that. The Old Covenant wasn't fulfilled till Christ came out of that tomb. That's when the Old Testament stopped. That's when it was fulfilled. But when we get Christ wrong in the Gospels, we get a different gospel. Why? Because we take the one characteristic of Christ and of God and we throw it out the window. So we have the Jesus movement today, right? Jesus gets me. Okay? I'm not going to go there because we'd spend an hour just talking about my disgust of that vile idolatry, right? But it actually brings a really good truth to light. Jesus needs to be made relevant. No, we don't. Jesus needs to look good for people to go after him. No, we don't. You know why? Because you just took the characteristic of God as immutable. You know what that means? It means God does not change. How many times have we read in the scriptures, I, the Lord, do not change. And then you had the blessing, right? Therefore, you are not consumed. Because God doesn't change, he doesn't destroy mankind who is deserving of his wrath. But when we take Jesus and we make him something else, or we make him relevant, we take away the immutability of God. We take away the holy character of God, the incommunicable attribute. How many of you know what incommunicable means? Okay, I got one, two, maybe three. Right. Okay, incommunicable means we don't share that attribute, and we never will, and we can't. Okay? That's just, that's who God is. Communicable attributes are the ones that we do share. But the immutability of God means he is absent and devoid of any change outside pressure to make him something else. So therefore, when we say we all need to make Jesus relevant, we have made an idol and we have made a mockery of the immutability of God, the sovereignty and authority of God's word. Period. So you've already started on the wrong foot. You have already thrown God out of the Bible and into a box. Why? Because that's easier to handle than to understand the holiness of God. It's easier to handle a Christ who's not... He's, he's easy to look at. He's comfortable. He's not intimidating. Christ in the flesh and His humanity alone is not intimidating to look at. But take the humanity of Christ and couple it with the holy sovereignness of God and it is intoxicating and it is terrifying because it puts the nail in the coffin to the fact of I am a wretched sinner in need of the wrath of God but because of Christ I don't have to endure that if I repent 
Repentance is thrown out the window. If Jesus gets me as I am, I don't need to change. I'm okay as I am. That's wrong. That's heresy. Man is without excuse before a holy God. Christ came to satisfy the wrath, the full, unmitigated, unwithheld, unrestrained wrath of God that the ungodly will endure for eternity. The same wrath that's on the ungodly in hell, which we've talked about, is a really despicable place, you don't want to go there. That full fury of God that's poured out for all eternity, doesn't end, is the same wrath that Christ endured on the cross. An eternal wrath for sin. And yet we want to say Jesus is an easygoing guy. He's easy to understand. He gets me. I'm okay. No, we're not. If we are okay, why do we have the gospel? If we are okay, then throw the book out the window because this is irrelevant at that point. Oh, right, we're talking about relevancy. Well, the God of the Bible is relevant from eternity past to the present to eternity future. He does not change. Therefore, he, by definition, is always relevant. Always, unequivocally, without question, always relevant. Because he's God. God defines what is relevant. And if it's not from this, it ain't relevant to God. This is what makes us, as people, relevant. The more we can become as Christ, the more blessing we get when we hear from God, well done, my faithful slave. Enter into the what? What did he say? Enter into what? The joy of your master. Yes, Hazel. So this morning, I want to take that idea in getting Christ right, right? There's no point in doing this if you don't have Christ right. You heap condemnation upon yourself. Okay? That's why Paul wrote that warning in there. But if we get Christ right, and we start with the character of God, and we read the Gospels through the lens of Christ isn't just a man, but He is God in the flesh, we see a different Gospel. We see a different message in the gospel. We see the urgency. We also see the frustration and anger of God in Christ. How many times do you read the gospels and you're like, ooh, I'm glad I'm not on that end of that conversation. And I'm not just talking about with the Pharisees. How many times did Christ get agitated with his disciples? Many times. Why? Because they are still fallen sinful man with a very small mind, just like we are, because we don't have the mind of God. But the biggest contributing factor to making Jesus relevant is what we're going to talk about this morning, and that's discontentment. Discontentment breeds wickedness. Why? Because anytime you put God in a box, you're wicked. Anytime you say, God, I'm not getting what I deserve, you're wicked because you are not getting what you deserve, and that's hell, and that's the wrath of God. That's the whole definition of mercy. Not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So again, you get a, a play, right? Two sides of a similar coin. But discontentment breeds the fact that, one, my salvation is not enough. 
The fact that you are an adopted son and daughter of God ain't enough. That's what discontentment means. God, it ain't enough that I'm your child. I need more. Start on that promise. The other part that it breeds wickedness is because wickedness doesn't satisfy, right? Sin never satisfies. And when it doesn't satisfy, what do you do? You start digging in more and finding more ways to be satisfied. So what you do is you do what Romans 1 says and you start inventing evil. Why? Because that conventional evil don't satisfy. So let's go over here and try something new. Well, that don't satisfy. So now what do I do? Now i got to make something else up. Or now i got to take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and hopefully I'll dull my senses enough that it'll just make me feel satisfied. That's the danger of discontentment. Discontentment breeds a lack of faith. Why? Because we don't believe the Bible when God says He gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. He didn't promise more than that. He promised to give you everything that you need to live a godly and a holy life in Christ. Anything more and above that is the blessing of God for the purpose of serving God with it. Discontentment is a dangerous, dangerous thing in the church. And it's rampant in the church. It's rampant in people's lives. It is something that what? You have to work at. It's not easy to live a contented life. If you say that it is, I'll call you a liar and point you to, the, to one of the epistles of Paul where he says, I have learned it. It's not easy. It is a lifelong struggle. Why? Because we are incomplete in our flesh and oftentimes we lean on the flesh instead of on the spirit. But discontentment is dangerous in the church and dangerous in the life of a believer because it breeds a lack of faith, it puts God in a box, and it makes God, you owe me this. I'm not satisfied with where you've placed me, what my station is in life, what my circumstances are in life. Mark alluded to it this morning. Go to James chapter 1. Can you say with confidence, I find joy in the midst of my trials? What did James say? Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you find yourself in the midst of various trials. Why? Because trials produce endurance. And endurance produces what? Perfection. Do you know what trials also do when you're joyful in them? It breeds contentment. I am right where God wants me. Contentment does not equal complacency. Don't mistake what I'm saying for that. Complacency is a whole nother sin issue. Contentment and complacency don't fit on the same plate. Contentment is being okay with where and with what God has given you. That's why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, In all things give thanks. You have thanksgiving because we see the blessing of God more abundantly than what we deserve. We're going to turn to some scriptures this morning, and we are going to use the Bible because that's the authoritative God of Word, Word of God, God of Word. That worked out really good. But we're going to go there because this is where the authority is, not just my words. I just try to preach with what is in here, and y'all got to validate that. But I'm going to look, and I'm going to open up to an Old Testament section of scripture, and in Jeremiah chapter 42. I'm going to read a small section of Jeremiah chapter 42 and then a small section of Jeremiah 43. I'm going to set the context for you. 
because I don't want you guys to have to read the whole book of Jeremiah up to chapter 42 in order to get the context. So the context of the prophecy of Jeremiah was the fact that Jeremiah continued along with some other contemporaries to preach the destruction of Jerusalem, to preach the captivity of the people of God through sword, through pestilence, and through famine by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Why? For the purpose of rebuking them for turning away from God and for chasing after idols. Again, discontentment breeds idolatry, right? If I'm not content with what God has given me, I am now going to breed an idol out of that thing that I think I need or that thing I think I deserve. So Jeremiah here is in the midst of prophesying to the people saying, God is going to bring this destruction about. You know what happens? God brought that destruction about. He warned Zedekiah, told Zedekiah, if you do not turn and obey the word of the Lord and go out and present yourself to the king of Babylon, you will be destroyed and your children will be destroyed before you. You know what happened? He ran away. The Babylonians caught up to him and destroyed his family in front of him. God is true and faithful to his word. So we now have all the captives of Israel sent off to Babylon and dispersed among the nations. And then what Nebuchadnezzar did is he set up a small remnant of people. And he set up this remnant and said, y'all will serve me and you'll be okay. And Jeremiah says, y'all serve him and you'll be okay. Because it came from God. So what happened is, is you have this remnant now where Gedaliah was in charge. Well, he got murdered because he didn't listen to the guy that said, hey, by the way, they're out to get you. He said, yeah, that's a lie. Well, you know what happened? They were out to get him. Now you have this remnant, and they're coming to Jeremiah, and I find it interesting. And if you listen to the words, they don't say the Lord my God. They say the Lord your God. Jeremiah, talk to your God on our behalf. Starting in verse 1, Jeremiah 42, verse 1. Then all the commanders of the forces, Johanan and the son of Kariah, Jezaniah, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people, both small and great, approached and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Please let our petition come before you and pray for us to the Lord your God, that is, in, that is for all this remnant, because we are left but a few out of many, as your own eyes see us now that the Lord your God may tell us the way in which we should walk and the thing that we should do. Now, flip over to chapter 43. But as soon as, and starting in verse 1, but as soon as Jeremiah, whom the Lord their God had sent, had finished telling all the people the words of the Lord their God, that is, all of these words, Azariah the son of Hoshiah and Johanan the son of Kariah, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, You are telling a lie. The Lord, our God, has not sent you to say you are not to enter Egypt to reside there. You see what happened? The people had in their mind where they were going and what they were doing. God, I'm going to Israel or to Egypt because Egypt's a safe place. I'm going to go there because the guy that just killed the other one killed a bunch of Babylonians with him and they're going to come over here and destroy us. So they say, Jeremiah, pray to your God and tell us what he thinks we should do. Remember, this is in the context of Jerusalem was just destroyed and all the captives were sent off for unbelief. 
So when God gives them an answer and said, you shall not go to Egypt or you shall surely die because I'll send sword and pestilence and I'll send Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, there after you, they say, our God wouldn't say that. Only your God would say that, not ours. Because man breeds discontentment and has his own idea. And if God doesn't line up with his idea, it's not true. So you know what happened? They got to Egypt. You know what happened? Nebuchadnezzar went there. You know what happened? He destroyed the place. Killed them all. Slew them all with the sword. Pestilence and famine. Happened exactly the way God said it would. How many times in our life do we do the same thing? God, I'm praying for an answer. But I have in mind what that answer is supposed to be. And God, you need to answer it according to my answer. And we miss God's answer. Or we consider it, no, that can't be right. Because it doesn't fit this. And we go astray. And we miss the blessing of God by walking in obedience. So often, we as God's people do that, right? We see that tension in our life. The tension of, did God really say? Again, we heard that where? Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? How often do we do the same thing? God, that's not what I was asking for. I expected this answer. But here's the thing. When you pray, pray like this. God, here's my desire. But I want my desire to line up with your word and with what you want. And I'm willing to accept whatever that answer is and whatever it looks like. And give me the strength to be content in that answer. And see the difference that you find in your life when you do that. Because now you find your contentment in Christ. You find your contentment in the fact that God is wise and we are not. You find your contentment in the fact that God answers prayer all the time. May not always be what we want, but it's what we need. Now we're going to flip over in our Bibles. Go to Philippians chapter 4 if you would please. Philippians chapter 4. There's a verse here in Philippians 4, 13 that most people take out of context and it drives me back. Again, I'm a context kind of person, right? Why? Because that's the way God wrote it. So context, context, context. Philippians 4, 13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now we take that out of context and say, I can do anything. It's not the context that it's written. So let's look at the context because it's actually talking about contentment. The whole point of Philippians chapter 4 is contentment through the right perspective. Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. Actually, let's start in verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, what are you to do? Practice these things. Why? And the God of peace will be with you. There's a promise. Practice godliness and God's peace will be there. You know what peace brings? Contentment. How many of y'all like peace? How many of y'all can picture yourself sitting on the front porch somewhere? The birds are singing. It's 70 degrees. There's a nice breeze. The sun's setting. It's beautiful. And it's just peaceful. How many of y'all like that idea? Or sitting on the beach or whatever. You know, whatever you find. How many of you want to... Good. How many of you want to sit on the front porch in the middle of the city hearing people screaming and crying and fighting and gunshots and this and that and all this around you? How many would find that peaceful? No. Contentment? the first picture. Discontentment is the other picture. You know what you do with discontentment? You try to fix it. It doesn't work unless you fix it with God's Word. So, 
Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now he goes into talking about contentment. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Again, giving to the needs of the saints. Paul had a need. It wasn't that they were lacking concern. It was that they were lacking opportunity. Catch that. Verse 11. Not that I speak from want. Why? For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Do you see there's a couple key words there? One is I do not speak from want. Paul did not have want and need as we define it. But as most people today would define, Paul had a lot of want and a lot of need. But he says, I have no want. And then he says the next key word, I have learned. Contentment is learning. Contentment is learning. And if anybody in here argues, again, I point back to Paul. Contentment is learning. It's a learned process. It's not something that we naturally are gifted in. Most people are not content, naturally. Complacent, sure. There's a lot of complacent people. But content is something different. Contentment comes through knowledge and faith of God and a right perspective of God and a right perspective of ourself in where God has us. God has placed us at a certain station in our life. And the stations and the seasons change. And we've got to learn to be content with that. We may one day wake up and find we have cancer. And you need to learn to be content in that. Because that is the station and the lot in life God has placed you in for a purpose and a reason. And everything is for the glory of God if we look to God and we follow in obedience and contentedness. God is sovereign. Therefore, where he has you in your station in life, be content. And then he goes on to say this. In whatever circumstances, I am. Our circumstances do not dictate our contentedness. Make sure you remember that and mark that in your brain. Your circumstances do not dictate your contentedness. God dictates your contentedness. Therefore, if you find yourself discontent, go back to the scriptures and find God. Find God's perspective on your life. That breeds contentment. And then it also breeds what we just read up there in verse 9. Peace. You want peace, be content. Then he gets in verse 12. And I know how to get along with humble means, or with little, right? And I also know how to get live in prosperity. In any and in every circumstance, I have learned, there we are again, we're learning the secret of being filled and of going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is taking that verse and relating it back to contentedness. In all of life's circumstances, you can be content because God can strengthen you to be content. That is the goal of the Christian life, to be content in the Lord in all things, for His glory and for our good. Romans 8.28, right? All things work together for good for those who love God, who have been called according to His purposes. Now I'm going to read verse 29 because I didn't memorize 29, sorry. Verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. 
conform to the image of Christ. How much earthly goods did Christ have? Read the Gospels. Nothing. He said not even the Son of Man has a place to lay his head. Was Christ ever discontent? Nope. Not at all. Did Christ have an easy life? What little we see of it, right? We have a condensed version of three years. We missed the first 30 years, which I really wish I knew more about it, but we don't. Maybe one day he'll tell us, right? But we have the picture of Christ, God in the flesh, and we see nothing but contentedness. Why? Because everything that he did, he did because he saw his Father doing it. Everything he said is because that's what the Father said. Everything Christ did was because that's what God was doing. Paul said here in verse 9, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Again, it's the imitation of Christ. You see somebody that is godly and lives a godly life, imitate it. Because it's why? It's not because he's so great. It's because God is giving a living example of what it looks like. Right? We don't have God living in front of us in the flesh now. We don't have the example of Christ living on earth right now. We have it in the word, but we also have godly people around us to show us how that's done. God has blessed us with the church for that purpose, learning to do life together. Not everybody does everything perfectly. If you don't believe that, just look up here. I don't do everything perfectly. But you know what? There are things that possibly I do that you struggle with, or things that Mark does that I struggle with, or things that Samuel does that Harrison struggles with, or things that John does that Elijah struggles with, and so on and so forth. So you're able to look at the godly characteristics of the people around you and pull those together to imitate them, and then you know what happens? The church starts functioning as it's supposed to, and you start living a godly life, and you start finding peace because you have contentment in life. If we have nothing else in this world but salvation, is that not enough for you? Because that's what it boils down to. Are we content in the fact that we are approved workmen of God? That we are adopted children of God? Or is that not enough? Because discontentment is bred out of the fact of that is not enough. There's more. There's something God's not giving me that would make life better. It's a lie from the pit of hell. That's what Adam and Eve were deceived with. Do you know what God's not giving you? Knowledge, wisdom, God-like character, understanding good from evil. You know what should have been the first clue? What is evil? Right? they never seen it. They never understood it. But to know how to live with contentment breeds peace. Because it breeds a right view of God. And those who have a right view of God are found in Christ. And therefore, that is ultimately your peace. When God says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, one, we're supposed to do that. If y'all didn't know that, hear me now. You're supposed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Where does that peace come from? The gospel. Because Jerusalem is filled with what? Jews. What do Jews practice? Judaism. You know what Judaism is? It's a false religion. It's an idolatrous religion. They are to follow Christ. That's where peace comes from. Because if you do not have Christ, you do not have peace with God. If you do not have peace in Christ, you are at enmity with God. You are a hater of God and a mocker of God. Therefore, you have no peace. 
Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. He says this. Actually, I'm going to read verse 7 down because it sets the context again again. Big personal on context. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, so therefore to keep Paul from being prideful, there is given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And Paul recognized this, right? And concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. But God had an answer. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, since he understands the fact that contentedness in Christ, being okay with his circumstances, being willing to accept the station God has him in, he says this in verse 10, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, we sang that great and glorious hymn this morning, right? What was the last one we sang before the message? It is well. Do you guys know where the author of that wrote that from? The loss of his family. And yet he penned the hymn, It is well with my soul. Contentment in Christ, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. How? Through contentment with Christ and peace in God. Because you rely on the reality of God, not on the visualization of your circumstances. Does it make it any less hard? I'll guarantee you that guy that wrote that hymn struggled with grief. As any man would. As any person would. The Rigg family is struggling with grief over losing a daughter and a grandchild. Her husband is mourning, and yet it's a mourning with knowledge. It's a mourning of contentedness knowing that that child was called home by its creator. Who are we to say, God, it ain't the right time? We're not. Are we willing to be content in our circumstances of life at all times and in all things? Or are we not? I think it was Samuel this morning that read Hebrews 13.5, which is kind of funny because it's one of my texts this morning. But in Hebrews 13.5, it says this, make sure, so the author of Hebrews is summing up the idea that since our God is a consuming fire, how we ought to live, right? And because of that, he goes through a bunch of things that we ought to do. Don't neglect hospitality. Remember prisoners. Remember those who are suffering. Remember those who are ill-treated. Keep the marriage bed pure and undefiled. You see how he threw that in there? That's a really important part. And then he says this in verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Why? Being content with what you have. Why? For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And because of that, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Consider their con- the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. What is the definition of faith that he gives in Hebrews 11.1? 1? Well, just flip back, right? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
It's not based on our circumstances. It's not based on what we see. It's not based on what people today call your reality. Our reality is a spiritual reality. It's just played out in our fleshly life. But our reality is a spiritual one. Right? That's why Paul says you do not wage war according to what? The flesh. You wage war in the spirit. The flesh is weak. The flesh is nothing. It's a temporary dwelling place. Right? So Paul said, this is a temporary tent. I use this tent and carry it through my pilgrimage through this life. And eventually I'm going to cast it aside and I'm going to be given a permanent tent. An eternal one. A spiritual one. One that is perfected in the holiness of Christ and in the righteousness of Christ. That's our reality. When we get our reality right, we get our perspective right. Again, perspective, contentment, breeds peace and faith and surety. Turn to the book of James with me, if you would. James was a hostile preacher. He reminds me a lot of Vody when he gets worked up. James was a hostile preacher. He was willing to throw it out there, no holds barred, and let people just have both barrels, and this is the way it is, because this is what God says. He's a lot like Jude, right? The small book of Jude, you can take that, and man, that book is packed full of contention. And it was meant to. That was the purpose of it, right? But in James chapter 4, he gets into the idea of contentment. He starts out in chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now remember, James is writing to who? To the church. This isn't, he's not writing a letter to the unbelieving world saying, what is the source of conflicts and quarrels among you? You already know what that is. He's talking to the church. Now, you among the church, what is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? And he answers it. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust. Oh, we know lust leads to what? Death. Right? Chapter 1. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. And remember, Jesus defined murder as even hating your brother. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Again, discontentment. I need this to make me feel good or to enjoy. You adulteresses. It's a heavy word, right? We see that a lot in the Old Testament. God called Israel oftentimes a harlot, an adulteress, right? You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you know the church today looks more like the world than it does like Christ? So are we looking at hostility towards God or are we looking at a, a church that's inviting people to come to Christ? Ask yourself that question. Or do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And out of that he calls you what? Submit therefore to God. It's a calling for you to find contentment in God. If you submit to God, you're willing to accept whatever it is he has for you. No matter what the circumstances are, no matter what happens, no matter if it fits in the box of this is my ideal, 
No matter anything else, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and here's your promise. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. So the works of your hands, right? Hands are about the work of God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Why are you double-minded? Because you're trying to find pleasure in the flesh instead of pleasure in Christ. You're trying to find contentment in the world instead of contentment in Christ. You're trying to find the love of God through the hatred of God. They don't work. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Why? Because you realize the fact of that's how you're living. And if you're not miserable and you don't mourn and you don't weep, how do you have repentance? Repentance, by definition, is mourning and weeping and being saddened by the sickening reality of our sin. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. It's a great promise. God is close to the brokenhearted. Does your heart break over your sin? Over your discontent? Over your lack of faith? Or does it not affect you? Because, eh, everybody does that. And I'm alright. Because Jesus can be made relevant. Ooh, I just brought that in, didn't I? Yeah. Christ is relevant as who he is. And the reality of Christ brings humility and heartbreak and repentance. But it also gives peace and joy and satisfaction and contentment. Where do we fall? How are we doing? Now I ask that question because Paul asked that question repeatedly in his letters to the Corinthians. Test yourself to see if you're in the way. And what did he say? If you're not willing to do it, are you really walking in the faith in the first place? Right? He goes back to the heart of it. If you are unwilling to do these things, then you probably ain't where you're supposed to be in the first place. Let your life be a mirror and a reflection back to you. Right? What did James say in chapter 1? How many of us can look at our natural face in the mirror and then forget what you look like? John would if he shaved his beard. He'd forget what he looks like. I do every time I look in the mirror. Exactly. But how many of us can do that? He says that's like the man who looks at the law of God and then forgets what it says. He forgets to do the things that are in the word. We read Psalm 19, which is one of my most favorite psalms this morning. And what's it about? Is that about the exaltation of the Word of God and the exaltation of God Himself through what He has created. Again, it's the echo of Paul in Romans 1 that all creation screams there's a God. And it shows His attributes. Don't turn your ears to be deaf. If God is pressing on something in your life, don't shun it. As we get into the Gospel of Mark, remember who Christ is. Again, do this in remembrance of me. It's not, I remember the warm and fuzzies and the good pricklies, right? It's, I remember everything that Christ was. Not that he was just a man, but that he was also 100% fully God. You can't separate the divine from the humanity of Christ because they're not inseparable. 
Christ is immutable. Again, I'm going to emphasize that over and over. Christ is immutable. He does not change. Therefore, we cannot make him more relevant. Therefore, we need to make ourselves relevant to Christ by the power of his spirit, through the reading of his word, through the admonition of the word, through the washing of the water of the word, through repentance and remorse, through humility, through submission. Our culture does not like the word submission. If you don't believe me, do marriage counseling, premarital counseling one time and bring that word up and see what happens. People don't like it. But you know what? God loves it. You know what Christ said? I submitted to the will of my Father. And what did God say multiple times in the scriptures? When Christ was baptized, when he was on the mountain transfiguration. Well, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do we listen? Do we listen with all of our being? Or do we only hear partially with one ear because it's not quite jiving with what I'm hearing in the other ear? Contentment is a journey, but it's one you have to work at. Contentment is a skill, and it's one you have to hone. Contentment is joy and peace, and it's one we have to long for. Because it's not easy. Even Paul, what? In that verse we read, he cried out to the Lord, take this away. I don't want this. But what did God say? My power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. And what did Paul say? Great. I'm going to boast all the more about my problems because God is glorified in that. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to accept our stations in life, our circumstances, where we're at, where we're going, what we're doing? And are we willing to listen to the answer of God, not, God, that isn't what I was asking for? Because sometimes they're different. But if we pray and we pray rightly, Lord, here's my desire. Does it line up with yours? It will. When you seek God's desire and you seek his will in your life, you'll start seeing those things fall in line. And you'll start seeing that even the hard times are easy. Not easy in the sense of I can walk through it like a champ, but easy in the sense of you know God's carrying you through those and you rest in the arms of God. Christ already paid it on the cross. Stop picking up your burdens. Leave them at the foot of the cross because they were dealt with. And be content in the fact of we have everything we need for life and godliness. What did Peter say after he said that? He started saying, this characteristic begets this one, and this one begets this one, and this one begets this one. And then what does he say? If you have these and are practicing them and are full, you are never useless. It's important. That's Second Peter chapter 1, by the way, if you want to read that. The importance of contentment in our lives. It's something that we need to master. Why? Because just like God told Cain, sin is crouching at your door, seeking to devour you and master you. But you must learn to master it. We can go the way of Cain, and we can ignore that. Or we can heed the word of God and become pleasing to God like Abel was. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day, a day that we set apart each week to come together as the body of Christ and to exalt you because you are worthy of our adoration. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of all glory and honor and majesty and power. 
And Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with the opportunity to journey through your word through the book of Revelation. We thank you that you have given us hope and a living hope in Christ. We thank you that you desire for us to learn to be content and to find joy and peace in our contentment. Because contentment breeds a correct view of Christ and a correct view of you. Father, help us to continue to refine our view of Christ. That it would be right and truthful and line up with the scripture. And Father, as we look forward to journeying through the gospel of Mark, I pray for wisdom and teaching and expositing your word there. But I also pray for a heart that is soft and supple and moldable. And Father, may we read it and see more of who Christ is in it. That way we can give you glory and honor and praise. That way we can find ourselves submitting with great joy to your will in all things. That way we can continue to look at our lives and see your hand actively working And we may praise you for that. Lord, we just pray your blessing on your word. For in it we find great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.